HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I will be talking with Stephen Ritz, an acclaimed Bronx educator and founder of the Bronx Green Machine, an impact-driven nonprofit. Originally an after-school alternative program for high school students, Bronx Green Machine has evolved into a K-12 model fully integrated into core curriculum. Stephen's new book, The Power of a Plant, documents his own experience teaching for over 30 years in one of the most marginalized communities in the country, the South Bronx and how he, quite accidentally, came to found an organization that addresses issues of child obesity, lack of access to healthy, affordable food, and limited job opportunities that make it difficult to end the cycle of poverty in underserved neighborhoods. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So so excited to have you and, you know, loved, loved reading your book. It was so engaging and really painted... A, a picture of your own experiences in a way that was incredibly engaging. <laughs> well, it's about passion, purpose, and hope. Yeah, yes, and that really came through. Um, okay, so let's start in the beginning. How and when did you come to start teaching, and what were some of your kind of early experiences that helped shape the approach to your work with students who you kind of refer to as being seen in the system as um, separate and unequal? Well, I came to teaching totally by accident. You know, I'm still waiting for the NBA to call back. <laughs> I'm still so waiting. So you were a basketball yeah, yeah, I was player? I a basketball player. I'm still waiting. It's, I'm almost 
at the point where I accept it's not going to happen. Yeah. But Phil Jackson, if you're listening, I'm here. <laughs> um, otherwise, you know, good old Carmen Farina. I'm a much bigger fan of Carmen than I am of Phil Jackson. And that's, you know, that's where I'm putting my stake in the ground in public education and changing lives. All right. And so when, so you started? 1984. When the Bronx was literally burnt to a crisp. And yeah. the school that I started out was the only standing building in an eight-block radius wow. in the middle of the South Bronx, the original South Bronx High School campus. Huh. And by happen chance, just before I left to Europe to try and play basketball, I took a teaching test, which was nothing more, quite frankly, than I felt, you know, a, a heartbeat test, if you will. Right. Because I was not the best student in college. You know, I've been asked to graduate elsewhere several times <laughs> in my life. <laughs> so, so I put that right on the table. Yeah. But coming before I left, there was this tremendous teacher shortage in the South Bronx. Mm-hmm. No one wanted, in New York City overall, no one wanted to work in the South Bronx. And when I came home, I had all these offers. And I'll never forget getting off the train in a knee brace, you know, and a pair of you know, tidy whitey shorts and uh, a pair of Converse high tops with a cast from my ankle to my hip. Yeah. Getting off the train and watching a chair fly out of the fifth floor window and, and hit the middle of the street and just bounce. Yeah. And bounce and bounce as if it was normal. And when I got in and met an administrator in the building and we were supposed to go to the fifth floor and the elevator dropped into the basement and the assistant principal didn't know where we were. At that point, I knew he was the guy I wanted to work for. Welcome to the wide world of education. A lot of people would have, you know, interpreted those experiences as omens, not... (laughs) That would have maybe scared them away, you know? Well, the the reality was I knew that anything would make a difference. Right. The bottom line is I've always been one person that is committed to the lives of young people in some shape, manner, or form. And I felt like if nothing else there, I could certainly be a young person amongst other young people who could also commit to their lives. And, you know, 30, 40 years later, the data proves one thing, that children who have access to one kind, caring adult will succeed in life. And I am determined to be that kind, caring adult for as many children and colleagues and community members as I can be. And that's my story. Um, you talk a lot about in, uh, the South Bronx in the 80s as, as we kind of started to you know, being a real rough place. Um, what made you decide to put down roots and commit to staying in that community versus, um, you know, just having that kind of early experience and moving on? Well, I'm a Bronx, I'm a Bronx boy. So I come from the Bronx. The notion of what was happening in the Bronx was also equally fascinating because on the surface it was burnt and make no doubt about it. You know, all one needs to do is Google up an image of the South Bronx in the 80s. You know, you're not going to see what you see now. Yeah, I think people forget that because the city has the city is constantly transforming. But I think, you know, that's sort of generally lost on a lot of people, especially those who've moved here in the past uh, 10 to 20 years. Exactly. Hip-hop was happening, and I was so much a part of that scene, as excited as my children were to get their first pair of Air Jordans, literally so was I. (laughs) So I was very much a part of a world that was very much a part of me, if you will. And while the landscape of the Bronx had changed through my lifetime as a child of the 60s, I always say, you know, I'm a dyslexic Jew. I went from saying oi oi to yo yo real quick in the 80s. There I was in the midst of everything that was this incredibly fertile ground for innovation, disruption, uh, hip hop, all kinds, the art scene, music. And I remember going down into the basement of school and they, you know, they give you 20 pieces of chalk and a, and a teacher's key. And that was it. 
you know, go teach, go change the world. In many classes, I had students who were older than me and literally went down to the basement, picked up a textbook, and in the textbook, they were talking about one day man would go to the moon. Wow. And I remember, you know, Michael Jackson was moonwalking across America right then. And I remember reading it with children in class. And the kid's like, you think we're going to get to the moon? And I had to double check myself because you couldn't I couldn't it. believe it myself. I was like, maybe, you know, maybe I had too much fun in college. I kind of remember <laughs> a different reality. But connecting with kids for me was what this was all about. Uh, how are you not seen as an outsider? I mean, because... You know, on the surface, I think people could just say, "Oh yeah, I look like this Peter is a white Frampton. kid." Yeah, I looked like Peter Frampton back then with a head. I did have Jerry curls, um, <laughs> just so you know. But uh, I was able to run faster and jump higher than most, which was instant credibility. I talk a lot about the incident where I took every single kid down to the gym and literally jumped over them. Yeah. So I kind of grew up in a world before Nike C- said, "Can't do that now." Can't do that now. I did <laughs> jump over a Yugo in the parking lot, which was pretty cool. Wow. But for those of you who are old enough to remember what a Yugo is, you may not be. A Yugo was the first small car that debuted in America from Yugoslavia. Okay. A teeny tiny thing. But literally, I was the kind of guy who put my money where my mouth is. I didn't write a check with my mouth that I couldn't cash with my behind, so to speak. So I was excited by children. I was excited by what I saw brewing in the community. I was excited by all the innovation, iteration, this incredible art movement, this incredible music movement. And also the possibility of connecting children to something far greater. On the flip side, literally crack and AIDS were consuming lives daily. And that was absolutely tragic. It scared me. It was hitting close to home in my personal life, with my friends, with my colleagues and guys I went to school with. I mean, I think 10 of the 15 guys I played college basketball with to this day are either dead or locked up. And I saw lives being consumed left and right. So the ability to kind of be somewhat a voice of reason in a sea of madness, um, to me, was very critical. You know, the children always said I could walk into a room and no matter how crowded it was, I could hear every single heartbeat and make it and acknowledge every single voice. And that was what I tried to do is instead of putting kids in rows and boxes and corners and little neat file, you know, little neat corners, we would sit in a circle and talk and learn and try and get to better. Do you think that is something that can be taught or do you think it's like you have that ability or that for yeah, that capacity for kind of empathy and that and that desire. Well, now more than ever, and especially in this climate, without getting too political, mm-hmm. I'd love to believe that empathy can be taught um, because we seem to be doing a good job of preaching hate. So the flip yep. side of that is really teaching compassion, love, empathy, a human ecology, and now more than ever, a planetary ecology. Yeah. So I think people have a gift. Listen, there were a lot of things that enabled me to do the job that I did successfully. But it all starts with love. And this is about, you know, you give love, you get love. You meet people where they're at. You don't be judgmental. And amazing things can happen. You know, the rules in my classroom today are the same rules that I had 30. Say please, say thank you, come early, stay late. Thank you for correcting me. You are correct. Little things that go a long way. And now more than ever, given the power of the Internet, you know, being a good digital citizen is critical. Because when we were children in school, pass it down was, you know, the lie got big quick. Mm -hmm. But now the ability to pass it down and pass it on and create a whole false reality is insane. Yeah. So those rules still matter to me. Um, It seems like from the things that you've been saying that I might guess that you were... 
maybe in the arts or psychology, you know, in terms of your, your profession, but in fact, you taught science, right? Well, maybe not originally to start, but... I think originally I did teach science. Oh, you did? Um, yeah. You know, in fact, absolutely. I remember walking in saying, do you have any science background? And I said, I took science in high school. They're like, great, you're, it. you're the science <laughs> In high teacher. school. Yeah, in high school. I have 128 credits that I can speak very freely about now because they're not going to take them away from me. Yeah. Um, basically because, you know, I showed up in school and played basketball, which was a lot of fun. But ask me some substance, ask me some depth. Wow. What really guided my career in a later state was when I went back to school, you know, as a graduate student and realized, wow, I was a real accomplished failure. I have 128 credits and something that I can't do. I can't research. I can't write. I can't do the thing. I could write, but not write a research paper. I couldn't defend the thesis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, showing up in graduate school with a great undergraduate record that was largely um, fictitious, if you will, <laughs> uh, really drove the point to me that we have a system that is both separate and unequal. Thank God I was able to get through it, you know, because I had some talents mm -hmm. and I was a very passionate reader and education was stressed in my family. But what about for those children, those families where it's not, where we have, you know, first generation children, single parent homes, immigrant kids, you know, parents who haven't graduated high school. I've always had a love for reading and writing and the arts and everything else. I was very well educated. I just didn't do well in school. I think like Mark Twain said, I'll never let school interfere with my education. But now more than ever, education is the key to success. And mm -hmm. particularly in high needs, marginalized communities. That's the ticket out. Right. We're, we're a lot of people, frankly, shy away from wanting to work. Right. You know, we glorify athletes. We glorify music. And don't get me wrong. I did, too. Mm -hmm. But we also need to glorify academics. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you you were a teacher of the sciences for 15 or so plus years before you came to start um, your or, you know, uh, your initiative that we're going to, of course, talk more about. But um can you tell us kind of the, tell us the story of how you, you say it was accidental, how you came to, to found the Bronx Green Machine. So right. tell us kind of what was the, the turning point for you in well into your uh, teaching career. So well, right off the bat, what happened is I had a gift, if you will, for dealing with the most marginalized, those difficult kids, the quote unquote, worst of the worst. Yeah. I was able to connect with, motivate, energize, and coalesce. And those kids were older, right? Those kids were my age. Literally, I started teaching. Started. I was not even 21 years old. And, you know, back then you could stay in New York City public school until the day before you turned 22. So literally, I walked into a high school class with children who had bigger beards and bigger muscles and better haircuts than I did. <laughs> yeah. Right? But I was able to connect with them and motivate them in a way that few others had. And I kind of built this reputation as... I guess the modern day Mr. Cotter, if you will. Um, and I, I really relished that and relished the children that I worked with. And I think when you move those who are apart from to becoming a part of, everybody gets the multiplier effect for better or for worse. That translated into working across the Bronx in some of the most at-risk communities you can imagine, mm -hmm. with some of the most insane school crises you can imagine. I worked in a school that had a tremendous cocaine problem, a middle school. And we're talking, you know, kids on cocaine. It was horrible. It was, it was insane. Um, but again, was able to coalesce children and community around things that mattered to them while generating spectacular academic achievement. And that was near and dear to me. Along the way, I got married. Uh, we, my wife and I had some tragedy in our life. We lost some children. And I lost some children in school simultaneously 
to a lot of preventable diseases, which kind of shaped my the second half of my career, which brings us to where we are today. And literally, just at the end of the school year, walked out of that position and had to take a job closest to my physical home. Just I felt the 30 minutes each way that I was spending commuting was better spent with my wife and our daughter at the mm-hmm. time due to some of the tragedies we were going through and pain in our own lives. And I took a job at Walton High School, unbeknownst that Walton High School was the worst high school in New York City, soon to be closed, and got 17 overage, undercredited children who were deemed, you know, the worst in the school and turned them into stellar performers. And along the way, someone sent us this box. So the big story is, how did it all happen? Yeah. Someone sent me this box, and I remember getting called to the principal's office. Mr. Ritz, come to the principal's office. I'm like, how could I be in trouble? I've only been Already? here three weeks. Yeah. yeah. Uh-oh, here it comes again. And actually... You know, I was adored by a lot of the students in the school. To give you some context, we had 256 felonies in that building the year I took over. Wow. We had 48 school safety agents in that building. We had 18 armed police officers. Armed? armed. We had 18 armed police officers. Wasn't there with something guns. like 4,000 kids right, in there a building? 4,000 kids I can't in a even... building that was designed for at best. 1700. I mean, even 1700. Well, 1700, realize New York City is a school system of 1.2 million. So people forget that. Yeah. So 1700 is not wholly unrealistic. But in a building designed for 1700, where you have 4,000 and the bulk of them dysfunctional and coming from places with the whole intent to break up the school. We had 17 deans of discipline. So realize you are 17 people getting paid full-time salary to do nothing but police behavior. In addition to all of the actual PD. Right. In addition to all the other PD, school safety, and teachers. So when you think about it from an economic point of view, it made no sense. Instantly, I was made a dean of students um, at the school because I knew every single kid in the school. And I'll never forget, as they were hauling well, out you kids. Well, you were new to the school, so how did you know? I was new to the school, but having done middle schools for years throughout okay. the Bronx, most children knew me. Yep. And I think it's actually worth pointing out. So you said, sorry to interrupt you, but you said that you wanted to move closer. So you took a job closer. So it seemed, um, and this school was in the Bronx. Yeah. So you lived in the Bronx. I live in the Bronx. Yeah. You still do. I still do. I think that's like a very, very important point that you seem to be from the start, very integrated into this community. Oh, without a doubt. You know, people should not have to leave their community to live, learn and earn in a better one. Right. And having seen the Bronx burnt to a ground once, you know, I was determined not to see it happen again and really to put my stake in the ground. You know, the kids used to literally come to the house on the weekend and yell up at the Mr. Ritz, come out my basketball. And my daughter would be, my father's sleeping and his name is Mr. Ritz. And if you keep yelling at the window, my mom's going to throw hot water at you. Yeah, that kind of stuff. But I treat my students. The critical piece for me was to treat my students the way I want my daughter treated. And the way I would want anyone to treat their children. I think if you show love, you get love. And that's what a lot of this is. Um, okay, so, so getting back to the yeah, box. getting back. Sorry, so we we painted the picture of a of a school that was facing particular challenges. Literally, I mean, kids were being hauled off in handcuffs every day, and on their way out, they'd, they'd stop off at my office and say, "Mr. Ritz, how's your wife? How's McK-? I mean, people. I was growing up; I was very much a fabric of the neighborhood. Yes, so you. Re- well. So these kids really. Um, respected you even though they right I'm on their to, way to <laughs> and listen a lot of things happened in that building that would not have happened in other places and even that's at all, that time even at that time um the way we dealt with children 
systemically. I think, and thank God, a big kudos and a big, big kudos and shout out to the Board of Ed. We've gotten much better. Is there room yeah. for improvement? Each and every day. But I think, you know, we created a system right then where we were trying to break up the big schools and not know how to support teachers and not know how to support emergent schools around a really turbulent time in the Bronx as well, because it is a challenged community. Mm-hmm. Make no doubt about it. Still. 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 It's never been better, but we still have challenges and there's always room for improvement. So you, so you, I, we were just getting to the point when you were called to the principal's office. So I get this big box and the principal's like, wow, you've the principal's secretary is Mr. Ritz. Look what you've got. You've got this great box. And I'm looking at this <laughs> box and I'm so excited. I've got 17 kids who are really difficult mm-hmm. on a good day there lovely kids very challenged but difficult challenge like deve- i don't know development i don't know for a, a bunch of reasons with all sorts of baggage whether it's special needs whether foster care whether criminal records whether they have children themselves i can't s- that those are very diverse kind of set of challenges i can't imagine putting everybody in it lumping everybody together sadly that's what the board of ed did at that time okay um, that's what they did and again these are children who had to stand on a scanning line for four 45 minutes a day to get through the door to come to school. It's incredible. Right. So I'm just excited that we're getting resources. I'm like, this is going to be great. Smaller classroom. Smaller class. And wow, I got got this box. (laughs) I got a box. Maybe they're microscopes. Maybe they're computers. Maybe they're something cool. And I open up this box and inside they're filled with these things that look like onions. And I'm like, man, this sucks. What a disappointment. I couldn't wait to open the box. In fact, I opened it like in the hallway, like, you know, the oldest oldest sixth grader in the building. Here I am. I got something (laughs) great. And I open it up and I'm like, crap, what is this? And then the instinct in me is like, this is dangerous. I love that. You said you like, you ripped it open and you said, I saw projectiles. Was that the word I think that was? Yeah. These these were like, I just pictured kids chucking these at each other, at me. This is just. Literally throwing onions at you. Yeah, literally a disaster. So I come in, I stash this box behind one of those classic old radiators that is covered with three and a half inches of paint facing the window and forgot about it left it there, you know, oh, well, I'm on someone's crap list, you know. (laughs) Thank you for this box of onions. Nope, that doesn't check my box for today. Back to the Terra Dome. You know, box behind the radiator. And literally six weeks later, there was this fight, emerging fight in the class. And in very slow motion, I see a girl with tattoos and piercings getting ready to whoop this skinny little kid who has pushed her too far and I see my career ending. As they both get up, you know, I'm like, I can't get across the room fast enough to break up this fight. Everybody's really excited about the fight. I see this boy go grabbing under the radiator. In slower motion, I see my career ending, not knowing what's coming out from under the radiator. Wait, was he one of the, was he... In the fight, one of the yeah, two he was in, he was in the fight, yeah. Okay, and all of a sudden he grabs and he's shocked. Something comes out, and the box that had been behind the radiator burst. You know, the, it all falls out, and there are hundreds and hundreds of flowers. And he grabs out and he comes up and he has a handful of flowers and he turns and hands them to Carol. And it was the like the person who he was in a fight the, with, the person who was going to put a beating on this kid <laughs> and end my career because Carol was no joke. Yeah, um, you know, I was just like, how am I going to stop this girl who is bigger than me from really just pummeling this really? And you're tall. I'm tall. Yeah. I'm big, but you know, there's a limit to what you can do, yeah. both legally, physically, and you know, within the confines of a classroom. And Carol was no joke. 
So literally, he hands her these flowers, and everyone's like, and they all start falling down. It was the box got wet because the radiator leaked. There was enough sun coming in from the wind, so there's moisture, heat, and it turned out that these onions were daffodil bulbs. Who knew? Um, I didn't know, and we have a bunch of kids walking around the class with flowers, and that's what I call a teachable moment in the middle of the South Bronx. That was a big aha moment. By the way, I love that you just stashed a bo- what you thought was a box of onions behind a radiator and thought that those wouldn't, like, I don't know, de- decomp- decompose, smell, right. something, right, so and then the you forgot about teacher, it. Right, there's the science teacher <laughs> in me as we sit here outside a beautiful restaurant in downtown Brooklyn. Yeah, like, well, to the South Roberta's Bronx, isn't, yeah. isn't actually beautiful, but it's cool. It, it's definitely hip. <laughs> It's definitely him. Yes. Sorry. So, yeah, I I, I also thought about that. I'm like, what did you, like, I guess you would have smelled it eventually. But There were a lot of other things to smell in that building. Trust me. Um, Trust me. And so you saw the the kids' kind of response to, I don't know, something green, something unexpected, Well, it was hilarious to see this skinny little kid, like, like seemingly surrender with a bunch of flowers. And, like, you know, Carol just grabbed them and looked at them. And they were really beautiful. I mean, blooming daffodils are a gorgeous, gorgeous flower. Mm -hmm. And that was a teachable moment. And when we realized because of the way he pulled it, the box, like the paper of the box just like ripped open. It was all that needed. And just all these flowers started coming across the floor. It was like, it was raining flowers in the middle of the South Bronx. And then, and then, and then what? So So you looked inside the box. We were like, I was like, I didn't know what they were. So, number one, it's an opportunity to find out what are these things, mm-hmm. only to find out that there was a note inside saying that we'd been, we had been invited to a local park to plant these things to commemorate 9-11. You're like, and, they're, yeah. are, they're already uh, grown, sprouted. Well, well, the cool thing, it was still a weekend or two away. So, like, the invite was for right before Thanksgiving, right before the, la- the first frost. Mm-hmm. So we got these things the first week of October. This thing happened the first week of November. There was still time. And I'm like, wow, we've got these things. I'm like, guys, we were invited somewhere. Who wants to go? And it turned out 11 of the 17 went that year. Um, some of them won some prizes. We had a great experience. And we actually, instead of putting these bulbs in the ground, like hiding them, hoping they'd come up in the spring because they were forced, we put them in live into the ground. So they made this huge impact in a very prominent local park, mm-hmm. which was an amazing experience unto itself. And that was the start. And that year, my students and I planted 25,000 bulbs or 15,000 bulbs across New York City to commemorate 9-11 with New Yorkers for Parks. Um, The most marginalized kids in that school won an award from the city council member, a city council speaker, and then Gifford Miller. Mm -hmm. Um, We were celebrated and treated like celebrities. And that was the start of something great. And did you and and. That is when you kind of got the idea for for Bronx Green Machine. So why don't you? No, not then. Not then. It took a while. Okay. It took a while. We started a green teen program. I came up with this notion of, you know, the green economy was was just beginning to come into fruition. You know, then great Mayor Bloomberg, and I am a Mayor Bloomberg fan then and now. (laughs) Thank you. Good. You are too. (laughs) Uh, And thank you, Mayor Bloomberg, for your very generous donation and acknowledgement of the problem that we are all facing, both locally and globally. Just want to put that out there. Mm -hmm. But we were invited to an event, and Mayor Bloomberg was also championing this notion of more parks, a million trees initiative. And I had kids who really liked digging trees and really wanted to work in parks. And this whole green economy, you know, he created the abatement for green roofs, and my students and I got into green roofs. Lo and behold, 
Uh, I always like to say in the Bronx, everybody knows a guy. And my book is a story of I know a guy, someone knows a guy. You're always a phone call away from someone. It's about, you know, making connections and seizing opportunities. And we were connected to Majora Carter, who was then founding Sustainable South Bronx. Mm -hmm. And my students with her putting the first green roof in all of New York City on top of the American Banknote Building, which very ironically... As a child, I dreamed of robbing because there were pennies inside. So it was a full comeuppance for me. You know, all these kids, some of whom had felony convictions, um, couldn't believe that, A, we were working for an African-American woman who was the boss, which was the coolest thing for my kids to see. Which, you know, you point out repeatedly in the book that it's so important for, for children to be inspired by people who look like them. Right. And just be inspired by people in general. Yeah. Realize that communities like mine across the nation are kind of like the bottom feeder. You know, they, they serve to be what I call part of an extraction economy where people where the health, wealth, and opportunities in these communities are exploited, removed, and taken elsewhere. So I say the children need to see it in order to be it. So when they see local people doing great things and making local impact and making money legally and connecting in ways where we don't have to leave our community mindful that no child rises to low expectations, that's where the big turning point is. And that, you know, we can take ownership. We don't need a handout. We need a hand up. And that we, we are the ones that we're waiting for. So it was a great experience. Those students went on, those 17 children, none of whom were predicted to graduate high school. And what do we know about children who come to me from Rikers Island? They usually tend to be back within six months. Yeah, yeah. All graduated. Many went on to work um, independently, including after Hurricane Katrina down in New Orleans. And to this day, I stay in touch with all of them. They're amazing success stories, which we all celebrate in the book, The Power yes. of a Plan. Yeah. Really cool stories. So what, ha- what was the, how did you go from, how did you go from, you know, those 17 kids or the 11 who showed up planting the daffodils um, in your neighborhood park to what, you know, what you have today. What, how, how, did, how did the whole initiative kind of evolve and so how long did it So we went from ornamental plants and this whole notion of tree pruning. And there were so many great organizations, whether it's New Yorkers for Parks. I want to big, give a big shout out to Grow NYC. Big so shout great. out. Yeah. Trees New York. When my students learned that you could make $45,000 a year trimming trees, that was game-changing. That was enough to say, hey, maybe I don't want to stand on a corner. Maybe I don't want to do what I was doing and do something a little different. Then connecting with guys like Dave McInerney over at Fresh Direct, some of the wonderful people we've met at Whole Foods, some of the amazing people at Gotham Greens. I mean, this was just a perfect time for the green renaissance in New York City. Of course, right there in the South Bronx, sustainable South Bronx and Majora Carter really drove it home for us. And was this an after-school? So like we you started said, yeah. with an after-school program. I started with a lot of children who were overage and undercredited. You know, the forgotten, the disconnected, uh, the people who no one wanted anything. Oh, what are we going to do with them? Oh, my God, those tough, tough kids mm-hmm. who just really needed a whole lot of love and a whole lot of support. And that's what this is all about. I needed some support, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and together, we became an extended family. And then we learned about food, which was remarkable. Because How did we that went happen? from ornamental. We were invited to Whole Foods. My dear friend Nona Evans invited us to this place, Whole Foods, which we had no idea about. And when? what year was this? Oh, God. 2007. You know, the first Whole Foods opened up in, on the Upper West Side. 
And, you know, my students, I was determined to check it out. We got invited, and, you know, there I was, a teacher in a hoodie with kids from the hood. You know, my biggest fear was navigating the train all the way through the Bronx, you know, dreading who might get on the train and incite these kids. Mm -hmm. We got to the Upper West Side, and, of course, as, you know, we're walking up the block, literally the street is parting. Um, it's me with 17 kids, you know. You look, you look a little different We than look the other a little different. You could hear those electric doors lock, you know, as people. <laughs> yeah. It was horrible. And we went to a store that wasn't bulletproof. And kids know that. Oh, they kids know Kids pick it. up on that. Listen, my kids don't need a four-year degree in sociology to know who gets off what train stop and why yeah. and who's looking at them and thinking what. They know all too well. That's just part and parcel, sadly, of a reality and a rhetoric I work daily on to change. And I thank the people who opened up those doors for me and for my students to help change that opportunity. That's something also we need to celebrate. Absolutely. But we went into a store that wasn't bulletproof and literally got drunk on tomatoes, which is a <laughs> chapter that I think I refer to in the book. Mm -hmm. We saw food from all over the world. It was amazing. And I'm sure that could have been the first time that some of these kids were exposed to. First time I was exposed to yeah. it. You know, 10 years ago, I couldn't tell you 10 kinds of fruits and vegetables. I now grow 37 kinds of fruits, vegetables, and herbs indoors with little elementary school kids who are asking me for gourmet basil. It's cuckoo. <laughs> but that's the beauty of whole foods. And I remember children turning to me and say, wow, apples are like people. They come in all sizes, shapes, and colors. You know, there were purple carrots. I mean, things that you never, you know, that defied the notion of what our knowledge was. And of course, in the Bronx, you know, our knowledge of food is limited to what comes through a bulletproof window, sadly, yeah. or what's available or not available. So to see this incredible cornucopia of food and the way it's presented, you know, the store is beautiful. It's luxurious. The funny thing is, you know, there was this security guard in the store and I'm like, man, he's looking at my kids and my kids are looking at him and this is no security for my kids. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I'm worried because you never know what's going to come out of a kid's mouth. You never know how customers are going to react. But it was just love, love, love. And the kids responded. And it just undermines my fundamental belief that no child rises to low expectations. You know, we need to strand out incompetence from noncompliance and work to ameliorate both constantly. Um, okay, so we are going to take a really quick commercial break um, and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we are going to continue to talk about uh, Steve Rich's new book, The Power of a Plant. Stay tuned. Awesome sauce. <laughs> This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org.
on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Steve Ritz, celebrated educator and founder of the Bronx Green Machine. Okay, so when we we were just talking about the kind of the transition um, or the evolution of the of the organization and how it took shape and how you started focusing on food, especially in an area that was struggling particularly and still is um, uh, with with a rising childhood obesity epidemic and, Listen, and a diabetes, huge lack of access I to have two hundred pound sixth graders. That's, Let's call it what it is. Eighty so. percent of the kids in my school know someone who has diabetes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is insane the or, health crises. Yeah. Or like are, one in I don't know. Then when I became like, dean of students, then started working with younger kids. I would always pull kids into the office, and you know, this one wants to kill this one. So I'd, I'd start off with a joke question. Well, what do you have for breakfast today? Yeah, nothing. And nothing, or cookies, or a chocolate bar, or an energy drink. Um, and what did I really? You're know? like that's a recipe for disaster. Right. That's a recipe for disaster on a good day. Yeah. Um, you know, and what do we know about heavy kids? They're either bullied or bullying. They don't get picked for the team. Mm-hmm. You know, so many issues in school were food and food related. And then I started looking at performance. And of course, you know, by then I was close to 300 pounds. Yeah. And I needed to do something about it. I had a heart attack. You know, I oh, passed wow. out in front of my daughter. Um, the kids were calling me the big cheese because, you know, I was eating everything that they were eating that was available in the community, which was cheap, fast, highly processed food and what does that beget it begets disease and disease and clearly i was all of the above yeah and so you decided to make the kind of what was the moment where you where you trans uh, you decided to kind of start focusing on or you talk about whole foods but then what so then what well, did you the do big, next? the big epiphany for me was you know waking up in the emergency room with my daughter next to me and seeing what I looked like after my first, you know, TED Talk on TV. Because if they say TV makes you look 20 pounds heavier or 300 pounds, I didn't need help. Um, and it was just enough. You that's know? why we love ra- That's why I love radio. Right. <laughs> no one looks as good as they do on radio. Right. Yeah. right. I'm looking good today on radio, I must say. And you are too. Well, but you lost a lot of weight. I lost 110 pounds. And solely through kind of your experience working with teaching kids? Well, part of it was I have to give credit to my dear friend Ruben Diaz Jr., the Bronx Borough President and State Senator Gustavo Rivera, who started this whole notion that the Bronx can, you know, change attitudes now. And that we didn't need trainers and fancy people from Manhattan or anywhere else in the world to change our lives. That some good common sense could really dictate better practice for people and communities. So less sugar, less salt, smaller portions, just simple changes really added up. And for someone who is pre-diabetic, cirrhotic liver on 80 milligrams of Lipitor a day, to me, that made really good sense. And I embraced these small, simple changes and have really been able to transform my life and the lives of other students. And then I learned about growing food in school. Because part of the thing that you want to do is always talk about scale. Mm-hmm. And how do you scale, you know, small success that you have with a group of kids into wholesale success. Yeah. And that's really what I, I mean, I'm a big champion of wholesale change. I want to be disruptive. So I started looking for technologies around the world that would allow me to not be that crazy kind of MacGyver teacher, but that any teacher could do. And of course, I was also working on my own professional pedagogy. I'm a, I'm a lifetime learner. So as I became a building leader and went on to earn my master's in administration and do some work in leadership, I realized that I needed to focus on technologies that any teacher could use, that I didn't want to take children out of school. I wanted to create a whole school solution. I was blessed to come across this product called the Tower Garden. Um, Remarkably, and this is a very funny story, in 2013, my students and I 
won the National Indoor Gardening Championship only to be invited out to California. And surprise, it was the Indoor Marijuana Grow Show. So there I am with 17 <laughs> kids, you know, many of whom have a lot of issues. Yeah. And man, they thought I was the coolest teacher in the world, um, especially when we saw what was You're going like, on. Don't, don't do this, but, right. let's, but let's learn but let's from learn. How, it's, how, and, it, how it happens. And again, the children responded to that. They responded for respect for my career, respect for themselves and for the learning opportunity. And we found this thing called the Tower Garden. And it bears noting that in 2014, there was not one school in America with a Tower Garden. Today, we have over 5,000 schools with Tower Gardens so in the United the States. I was the first. We are now have a program that's spreading across Canada, scaling from 10 to 50 to 500 schools. I'm Tower Gardening in the United Arab Emirates. Wow. You know, our National Health, Wellness, and Learning Center that was taken with my Global Teacher Prize money. I took all the money and donated it to this center to build out, which is a low-cost, highly replicable, scalable center. Now, the richest country in the world is going to replicate it, which is so cool. I'm also closer to home, thrilled, and so grateful that the New York City Department of Education is going to replicate it and is hosting professional development out of our little South Bronx classroom in the most marginalized community in America, in the poorest congressional district in America, in the least healthy county in New York State, in the most broke-ass section of the projects you can imagine. Four stories up in a 100-year-old building. We are changing lives. And so what does this program look like now? Um... We're a whole school program. We are 25 periods of in-class instruction aligned to 25 periods of whole school instruction. So the art and science of growing vegetables indoors aligned to common core and content area is growing healthy schools, healthy students, and amazing outcomes. We've got the best school performance in the history of the building. I want to, and I, we're going to talk about kind of metrics of success um, and, and how this, you know, what, what the numbers have said um, in just a minute, but, um, so for a non someone who's not as ex, uh, knowledgeable about um, school curriculum, this actually means that each student takes your class or goes through. So we have 700 plus students in the school, all 700. And is it the same? Was I it am now. No, I am now at a pre-K, pre-K to five. I'm in a lower school, an, uh-huh. a lower elementary school. And my big epiphany was that it's just easier to raise healthy children than fix broken men. And if you can start children on a good trajectory, no matter what, they're going to wind up in a better place rather than playing catch-up at the end. Which was one of my questions when I was reading the book. And, and from kind of personal experience and exposure, I think that so many people get so excited at the idea. And, and um, you know, I want to ask you, like, why you think it is that people have such a connection to working with the land and growing their own vegetables? Because it is so true. You see, you see sort of the transformation, the desire to, to do more of kind of planting and growing um, the first time someone's exposed to it. But I do see a big drop off, you know, and even myself, you know, I, I worked in and ran a community garden that was actually out of school. And I was so excited about it for a couple of years. For a and couple then it, of years. And then, I, you know, other things came up in my life. And, and so, Cell phones, sneakers, and sex, they get older. You know, they want the other things. So how do you manage to keep kids? I mean, because it seemed like you were so successful at the beginning um, of keeping the kids engaged for a long period of time. Well, I like to think I still am. By, yes, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think it's all about innovation. It's all about iteration. But moving from outside, what I did is... I couldn't have other teachers travel to gardens. I couldn't expect other teachers to do what I was doing. So what I decided to, it wasn't scalable. So I gave birth to the first edible classroom in New York City, in New York State, in the nation. And literally, we grew enough food to routinely feed 450 students a healthy, fresh meal in school. 
on walls, on technology, wow. indoors, without ever leaving the class. And you know what the cool thing was for the older kids? Their cell phones never got dirty. Their sneakers never got ruined. Yeah, the sneakers. You know, the sneakers never got ruined. Yep. And most importantly, now in a community like mine, where I have so many immigrant students, people don't want their children to grow up and become farmers. But the cool thing is when you're doing it with state-of-the-art technology using 90% less water and 90% less space, and you can do it on a cell phone with an app, OMG, this is really cool. I'm making farming sexy again. On a cell and phone with really an cool. app. And that's really cool. Yeah, we even have applications for cell phones. We are doing all kinds of technology indoors. So literally four stories up mm-hmm. in a hundred-plus-year-old building, smack in the middle of the housing project. So I'm growing thousands and thousands of pounds of food with little kids. All year long, regardless of seasonality, regardless of space, I don't have to worry about environmental constraints, and it is bell-to-bell instruction. I have children reading to plants. I have plant police, leaf monitors, pH patrol, you name it. That's the beauty of it. And the beauty of a plant is this. If you put a seed in a child's hand, you're making a promise that they're going to see that seed grow to something great right in their own classroom. And that's awesome. And in a community like mine where so many children are literally hungry... And so many more food insecure, we get to eat every 21 days. And we cycle it. We're sending home 100 bags of groceries a week. We had a farmer's market last week that was insane. Parents came. Students came. Food is a non-negotiable. And we're bringing people together around the table for something that's so cool. But we document everything. So every single input is recorded. We're making predictions. We're doing analysis. Listen, I don't expect every kid to be a farmer. But I expect them to well, read we, about we it. We actually need more farmers. We do young, need more farmers. farmers in we this do country. need more farmers for sure. But I expect children to read about it, write about it, blog about it, do the science, do the math, and advocate. You know, this summer we're going to be making public service announcements. We're going to be doing all kinds of things to inform ourselves how to grow healthier food and how to feed our community. We are home. CS55, Community School 55, is home to the perfect pickle. <laughs> I want to. I want to try it. Yeah. Well, listen. You are absolutely invited. Okay. Well, I'm coming for sure. Please do. Yeah. I was going to invite myself, anyways. <laughs> it's, you're invited. Um, but you could learn a lot about the work that we do on our yeah. website. So check out the Green Bronx Machine website. Check out the Facebook page. In case in point, you know we've got kids running Facebook instead of whoever Jay Z is dating or whatever Rihanna or Justin Bieber is some kind of egregious actor committing. We've got thousands of kids connected around healthy food healthy initiatives and celebrating the art and science of growing vegetables and growing so much something so much greater. What do you think it is about the connection? You know, like why do you think people have such a strong connection to to the land? Do you think it's innate or to growing their own vegetables? Well, I believe that when you connect children to nature, mm-hmm. you teach them to nurture. And when we teach children to nurture, we as a society collectively embrace our better nature. And when you have children who live in a place that is so gray and so industrial by default or by design, the the look of public housing in certain communities is certainly not attractive. But when you have children that are taking care of these plants and the plants are wholly dependent upon them for every aspect of their survival, children realize that they're part of a larger living ecosystem. You know, it's not us against them. It's us with them. And they're leaving, they're leaving, they're living, breathing entities just like we are. I have children who now understand that the water that goes into their toilets is the same water that could nourish their plants. And I have the next generation of water stewards, water police, energy misers. It's great. You know, I got worm girls running around in the middle of the South Bronx. It's awesome. (laughs) Um, Let's talk because I love talking about metrics of success. 
how do you how have you measured your progress? Well, over I like time? to say 50,000 pounds of vegetables later, my favorite crop is organically grown citizens, graduates, members of the middle class, but let's talk some board of ed statistics. We've had year after year of 100% passing rate on New York State Regents exams. Mm-hmm. I've had cohort after cohort of 100% graduation rate. We last year had a 45% increase school-wide on New York State performance exams. So, I, And I wasn't even in the country when the test was given. I was hanging out with Richard Branson. Um, <laughs> just, just a little same shameless plug. But wow. I was out of the country with Richard Branson when the tests were given. This year we got our best school report card ever. We've partnered towards 2,200 local jobs. Wow. So for That's a guy who incredible. takes no paycheck... Yeah. And is out there running, you know, an impact-driven, for-purpose volunteer organization. We are growing something greater. And that's what this movement is all about. The power of a plant. The power of people. Um, okay, so we unfortunately have to wrap it up, which I'm so sad about because I could continue talking. Yeah, we need to do started. a follow-up episode when I um, when I visit you. and, and do. Go live. Um, yeah, yeah, actually. I'm like, yes, that's a great idea. We will do that. Um, so last question. How can our listeners, who are, I'm sure by now, super inspired by the work that you're doing, how can they get involved and, how, and, and work to kind of bring this to their community if it isn't already there? Well, first and foremost, help us grow something greater. So please get out there and buy a copy of The Power of a Plant by Stephen Ritz. 100% of the proceeds I'm donating back so that we can replicate this program anywhere and everywhere. You can visit the Green Bronx Machine website. We are going to be unveiling curriculum. We have tons of resources. You can like the kids on Facebook. But remember, no child rises to low expectations and nobody out there will go broke giving love. So we can't do everything, but everyone can do something. So get out there, seize the moment, and as I like to say in my book, make epic happen and scream, si se puede. This (laughs) is our moment. Make it happen. All right, we're going to leave it there. But thank you, Stephen, so much for coming on the no, show. No, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, all right. So uh, before we wrap up, I want to give a big thanks, as always, to our sponsors for your generous support. Show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, the one and only David Tadashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.